Hello and welcome to Based on a True Story, the podcast that compares your favorite Hollywood movies with history. Today we're going to be looking at Disney's Pirates of the Caribbean to see how well that whole franchise got the depiction of real pirates from history. Now, there are five different pirates movies and they kick off with The Curse of the Black Pearl. That was released in 2003, and it set the tone of the entire franchise as it tells the tale of Captain Jack Sparrow trying to reclaim his ship, the Black Pearl, from his former first mate, Hector Barbosa. Along the way, Sparrow enlists the help of Will Turnell and his love interest in the film, Elizabeth Swan, to release the pirates from the curse of some Aztec gold that they stole. Then, in 2006, the second movie came out, Dead Man's Chest. In that movie, Lord Cutler Beckett of the East India Trading Company becomes the main bad guy along with the pirate-turned-sea creature Davy Jones. Jack Sparrow must steal the chest with Davy Jones' heart inside to escape the fate of having to serve 100 years on Jones's ship, a deal that he apparently made before the timeline of the movie. The third Pirates movie in the franchise that ends the initial trilogy was released in 2007, and that is at world's end. In this movie, we see many characters return, Captain Jack Sparrow, Will Turner, and Elizabeth Swan, of course, but there's also Davy Jones, Hector Barbosa, Lord Cutler Beckett, and a range of familiar pirates and characters returning. Four years later, the Pirates franchise returned with the first of the standalone sequels with 2011's On Stranger Tides. Since this isn't really part of the initial trilogy. It doesn't include all of the same characters. Instead, this movie focuses mostly on Captain Jack Sparrow as he searches for the Fountain of Youth. Although along the way, he comes across a new pirate with a familiar name, Blackbeard. In 2017, another standalone sequel was released called Dead Man Tell No Tales. In that movie, Captain Jack Sparrow is trying to get out of another curse. This time, he's looking for the Trident of Poseidon to defeat an old enemy, Captain Armando Salazar, who is trying to kill Sparrow. So that's a very brief overview of all five Pirates movies that we will be chatting about today. Oh, and I should probably mention those are all of the Pirate movies as of this recording. There have been plenty of rumors about more movies being made, but there's also been some doubt, as Johnny Depp has mentioned, he's not really interested in reprising his Captain Jack Sparrow character. I guess we'll see what the future holds for the franchise. But for today, I'm excited to chat about the historical accuracy of the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise with Colin Woodard. Colin was recently on the hit docudrama from Netflix called The Lost Pirate Kingdom. And he is the author of a fantastic book called The Republic of Pirates. It's a book that inspired the TV series Crossbones, as well as helping the game developers behind Assassin's Creed 4. Black Flag. Before we bring Colin on the line, let's set up our game. Two truths and a lie. If you're new to the show, here's how it works. I'm about to say three things. Two of them are true. That means one is an all-out lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one, the timeline in history that inspired the pirates of fiction took place in the early 1600s. Number two, Pirate captains were elected by a show of hands from the crew. Number three, up until his final fatal battle, there's no proof of Blackbeard killing anyone. Got him? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, your challenge is to find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode. And of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. All right, now it's time to connect with Colin Woodard about the historical accuracy of... Pirates of the Caribbean. The first movie in the franchise is The Curse of the Black Pearl, and it sets up one of the primary locations where a lot of the stories really throughout the entire franchise take place, Port Royal. Was Port Royal a real place? Port Royal was a uh, an important uh, and rather body port in Jamaica. It was for a long time Jamaica's primary port, and therefore in the whole English and later British, you know, Americas, that was the primary hub for their Caribbean operations. The empire, Jamaica, that was sort of the, um, the headquarters of the British fleet protecting their possessions in the West Indies and the, the largest presence for the English and British there. However, uh, where Disney has kind of taken a, a 
flight of fancy or taking advantage of of uh, flexible narratives in television, uh, Port Royal had been largely destroyed by the time the pirate outbreak came out. There was a terror. It was located on a peninsula jutting out into uh, into the into a harbor behind what's what was what was Kingston, which became the, the real fort for Jamaica. And there was a terrible earthquake that essentially caused the sandy structure of the peninsula to collapse along with like half the town drowning many people and pretty much Port Royal never recovered from that. And that would have occurred when the pirates who make up the real golden age pirate boom from which all of our mythology and pop cultural references to pirates of the Caribbean comes from, those, those were, they would have been children at that time when Port Royal was destroyed. But it was sort of a legendary place, not exactly of pirates, but of the buccaneer generation uh, who preceded them, who weren't in general pirates in the sense that they were outlaws uh, from the perspective of their own governments. So the real piracy outbreak uh, took place somewhere else, not in Port Royal. Okay, well, you mentioned the time there, and I want to ask you about that because the movie doesn't really let us know what time period this is taking place. Would it have been the 1600s, 1700s? When were that the pirates, the, the boom yeah, of the Yeah, the real uh, pirate outbreak that, uh, that inspired all the pirates of fiction and eventually the pirates of the Caribbean movies uh, took place between 1714 and 1719 in the Caribbean. And then uh, many of the pirates who survived moved on into Africa and especially the Indian Ocean for sort of an epilogue time period. But the Great Pirate Outbreak was sort of the early part of the 1700s and was hubbed not at Port Royal, but around Nassau in the Bahamas, which was their pirate's nest. And um, there was sort of a key book after most of the pirates had been captured, but some of them were still alive that was published in 1724 called The General History of the Pirates, spelled with a Y. And it was that book written by a, uh, an author using a pseudonym who was not uh, Daniel Defoe, but rather somebody else, um, was the book that really, it became a bestseller at the time in 1724 on both sides of the Atlantic. And it set up all of the received myth and stories about the pirates, which become the grist for all of your, your our pirate legends and pirate pop culture. That was the book that uh, you know Robert Louis Stevenson would later find when he wrote Treasure Island and Kidnapped, and thus it ended up inspiring in a secondary sense, the early Disney films, the black and whites, you know, of Blackbeard and others, and then eventually the um, the more recent Pirates of the Caribbean series with Johnny Depp. So it really so just that, kind of started trailing off even further and further from that book, kind of just everybody kind of writing their own fiction and trailing off yeah, further and further. Yeah, I mean, that, and that book was funny because it's a combination. Uh, some passages are exactly correct and quoted almost verbatim from what at the time would have been sort of secret or privileged government documents the author was given access to. And other parts we can prove are complete flights of fantasy made up to be exciting and, and give good stories. And there's other parts where we, we can't prove it one way or another because the, the source documents would be missing. But you can make pretty good guesses after you kind of follow the pattern for a while. But that book, so that was 1724, right? And that's kind of the, gives you a bookend because the moment where the mythology really kicks off is in 1724 after that big pirate outbreak. And the pirates that are traced in that book start uh, legitimately enough with the sort of, you know, the, the avatar, the precursor and inspirational figure for that generation of pirates, a man named Henry Avery, who committed a, uh, was, was the subject of a global manhunt in 1696 for depredations in the Indian Ocean and led him to come to Nassau to sell his, um, to sell his ill-gotten gains. But that's the time period, really, 1696 is the inspirational figure, and then 1714 to 1719, 1720-ish, and 21 outside the Caribbean was kind of the core uh, of the uh, era that the Pirates of the Caribbean movies are trying to replicate. They, of course, are very fuzzy about exactly when it takes place, but the technology, the time, and most of the references and what they're talking about are events that would have taken place then. Okay, okay. Well, going back to the, that first movie... At the very beginning of it, the character of Elizabeth Swan invokes parlay. She says, and I'll quote from the movie, according to the code of the brethren set down by the pirates Morgan and Bartholomew, you have to take me to your captain. And there's a few things to unpack there. Was parlay a real thing? Was there a pirate code? And were Morgan and Bartholomew real people? <laughs> I mean, a concept of parlay, generally speaking, existed in sort of the way warfare was conducted in that era. 
you know, this was still informal warfare. It was still that sort of gentlemanly time where you'd all wear proper uniforms, assemble in a field and march at each other to be shot sort of thing. <laughs> and people would come, you know, sit on the hillside and watch the battle for entertainment. But, um, you know, in that era, you'd wait, you could wave a white handkerchief or flag and, you know, march out with your flags and have a parlay, have a discussion between the commanders or emissaries of the two forces to discuss usually terms of surrender or something or other. So the general concept of a flag of truce and to parlay, to talk and discuss existed. But I've seen no evidence that the pirates themselves practiced parlay. I've never heard any references of that happening, nor that there was any specific pilot parlaying in their specific ethical culture and codes of behavior. The pirates did um, have, uh, you know, ships, you know, contracts, ships, codes of uh, that everyone would agree to. They're sort of articles of agreement um, becoming pirates. The most famous one to survive was captured when the pirate Bartholomew Roberts was captured uh, a bit later uh, in the African theater. Um, but it gives us an example of a full set of articles. It doesn't mention parlay particularly. And other pirates, there's lots of references in the real you know, documents and such to a pirate code or the laws of the ship that seem to correspond more or less and map to the ones that Bartholomew Roberts was using. So in other words, there were these ship's codes um, out there, um, but they don't appear to, they, you know, each ship would have had their own set of codes. They're probably largely similar, but parlay was not a major feature. Okay. And it sounds like maybe that's where they even got the name Bartholomew from, even though I, the impression I got from the movie was it's the last name, but it sounds like, I mean, it still sounds piratey. Yeah. <laughs> So they've taken, you know, Sir Henry Morgan's name and thrown it out there. Henry Morgan was a, you know, a, a privateer, you know, a generation or two earlier. He wasn't really a pirate. He was a pirate from the perspective of the Spanish and the people he's attacking. But, you know, in in he was so successful at what he was doing back then that when he got back home, you know, the sovereign, you know, made him Sir Henry Morgan and made him governor of Jamaica. He wasn't an outlaw at all. He was did terrible things, but he was not a pirate. And then, yes, Bartholomew Roberts appears to be where they borrowed the name Bartholomew, uh, a pirate who probably was in the Caribbean theater as an ordinary pirate and sailor. And after the pirates were evicted from the Caribbean theater circa 1718, 1719, he later emerges among the diaspora, the refugees, pirates of the Caribbean. He emerges in Africa and the Indian Ocean theater as one of the most fearsome um, pirates of the epilogue period, as I think of it. Okay. The weather is getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. Since it is in the title of the first movie, I want to ask about the Black Pearl as a ship. And according to the movie, there are two very fast ships. The Navy ship is called the Interceptor, and it's said to be the fastest ship. But then there's the Black Pearl that gains on her. And of course, there seems to be some supernatural boost that the Pearl has in the movie. But for ships like we see in the movie, how fast are we talking? How fast would they go? Well, they're pretty fast for age of sail. I mean, uh, a frigate under, I mean, it depends on the conditions you're in, right? Whether you're sailing into the wind, the wind's behind you, you know, the points of sail, how fast is the wind? Is your ship in good shape? But you know, uh, a top speed of a warship like a frigate, a pretty flexible one, might be about 14 knots. You're talking, what, 15 miles an hour sort of thing. Um, and a, a huge ship like a, you know, man of a, a, a um, ship of the line 
you know, with multiple decks of cannon that weren't exactly designed to be flexible. They were designed for those gentlemanly battles, right, where you line up your ships and sail by and shoot at each other, um, sort of floating fortresses. They might make 12 knots in exactly the right conditions. Um, your typical merchant vessels, you're talking eight or nine knots or, you know, 10 miles an hour sort of thing. Sounds pretty slow, you know, when you think about it in terms of, you know, vessels without Ford motors, but that's a pretty good clip for a large uh, ship um, in that era. Um, but yeah, you're, you're not moving it um, at, at the speed of the 21st century for sure. <laughs> not a speedboats. <laughs> Yeah. In the second movie, Dead Man's Chest, one of the major plot points kind of centers around the East India Trading Company. Was that a real company? It was. I mean, the East India Trading Company in the movies is um, is cast like a, you know, a vast, you know, like the the, the company in the Aliens movies yeah. and, the, <laughs> yeah. you know, all that, you know, that seems to control everything and yes. everyone's sort of on in it and it controls imperial trade it's and maybe the them. government. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's pretty much what the East India Company was, both the uh, English and later British East India Company and its Dutch rival, the Dutch East India Company, were these vast global trading companies that acted like empires unto themselves. You know, at its height, the British East India Company had an army of like 200,000 people of its own, wow. which was like twice the size of Britain's actual army. And they, in effect, would rise to become, I mean, they, they controlled their own empire, including large swaths of India, were actually owned by the company rather than anybody else. And they were trading all over the world with fantastical profits and, of course, had enormous political power back in England. So in that sense, they're describing the East India Company correctly as being your sort of nemesis in the film, except for the fact that it's the East India Company and its charter granted it a monopoly of trade with the Indian Ocean Theater, the East Indies and India. So they actually weren't allowed during the era of piracy to be trading in the Americas at all, in the West Indies, would be what the Caribbean would have been called then. Um, they would be prohibited from it. So they had no involvement and no influence directly over American affairs until the 1770s, like the period of the American Revolution, when they were granted a dispensation to trade tea. One of the, the big things you were going to India for was to collect tea, which was all the rage in England. And they were allowed finally to trade with the American colonies to trade tea specifically, but they actually had to stop in England first, even to do that. So that's why we think of the uh, East India Company when we think of the Boston Tea Party, because in fact, those were East India Company vessels that they were tossing the tea off. But you go back 60 years earlier to the era of the pirates, and East India Company vessels wouldn't have been there at all. Although I understand why Disney looking around for a giant corporate Borg nemesis might pick that name. There wasn't an equivalent, um, you know, Borg like that operating in the Americas. The biggest, you know, the Royal Africa Company, which was trading slaves in the triangle trade, taking enslaved people, you know, taking trade goods and manufacturers in England, doing the first leg of their triangle trade to Africa to trade at the slave forts to uh, get their human cargoes. And then in this horrible middle passage, the second leg, go to the Caribbean, the West Indies, to sell their cargo at slave markets and then loaded with treasure and goodies from that, the proceeds of that would sail back to England. That was the triangle trade. But even then, the Royal Africa Company, well, it was making incredible amounts of money. They weren't, it wasn't like they owned the West Indies colonies. They didn't have any direct political influence, although they were important, you know, economic factor in the slave societies of, uh, of the English West Indies and what would become the American South, the Carolinas and and, uh, you know, Georgia and Virginia. So, but Jamaica, Barbados, the, uh, the, um, the Leeward Islands colony and all those were, um, very much tangled up in the trade with the Royal Africa company. Okay. Well, I mean, I mean it makes sense though. I mean, the impression that I get from the movie with the East India trading company, and of course they're kind of the representative is Lord Cutler Beckett. He's just kind of a, the, the evil villain. Right. And I get the impression that there's a lot of corruption and it sounds like if there's a company that was that huge and had that much, political power and military power, it sounds like too, that there must have been some corruption going on as well. You just assume that that's going to be a thing. Would that be correct? Oh, yes. I mean, the East India Company, you know, the people involved were, um, could be very corrupt and self-serving. So were the governors at the time period uh, throughout the Americas. You know, it was uh, when Henry Avery, this pirate from the 1690s, whose, whose exploits would inspire 
the great Caribbean pirate outbreak of the early 1700s, he, he basically was wanted all over the world because he'd messed with the East India Company. He'd gone um, into the Indian, he, he'd, uh, he and his crew had mutinied for good reason on their English vessel, seized control of it and sailed into the Indian Ocean and decided to try to raid the most important uh, figure in India, the Grand Mogul of India's treasure ship, as it was returning from Mecca from the pilgrimage, you know, loaded with treasure and, you know, family members of the Mogul and his wives. And, you know, they raped and pillaged and stole the ship and, you know, killed lots of people. And this was terrible. The, the, the Grand Mogul of India was furious. The East India Company, you know, a lot of their people were arrested. There were threats. They would put them to death or kick the East India Company out of India at the time. So it was a huge disaster. So it was an all points bulletin to catch this guy. It was like the first time that the East India Company and uh, the Royal Navy and everybody were all trying to chase the same guy. So where does he go? He goes around the world, sneaks away. You know, everyone's chasing for me in the, in the ocean. He went all the way around to the Caribbean, to Nassau and the Bahamas, and just shows up and says, oh, yeah, my name's Henry Bridgman, and I've got this giant vessel that looks like an Arab treasure ship, but no, it's not really. I'll give it to you, and I'll give you a whole mess of the treasure. And, you know, in exchange for a smaller ship, he basically fences his goods to the British governor in Nassau, in the Bahamas, and the English governor, and, um, and then sail, you know, his men break up and sail around, and some of them go up to Philadelphia, and one of them marries the daughter of the governor of Pennsylvania, right? So, I mean, that's how corrupt it is. The most wanted person in the whole world turns out to be, you know, kind of trading his goods, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, with the, the governors themselves. So, yes, I mean, East India Company, but through and through, you know, a lot of people were self-dealing in that era. Um, you know, the governor of Virginia uh, in, the, in the Great Piracy era, Alexander Spotswood, it, set up a bunch of, you know, dummy companies to basically give himself a vast, you know, feudal preserve of land, you know, through sort of blind trusts and stuff, which was named Spotsylvania County and still is after himself in Virginia. You know, it just kind of, you know, corruption was um, very, very common and uh, the East India Company would have been no exception. Wow. Wow. Uh, changing gears a little bit, um, still in Dead Man's Chest, another big concept that we see in that movie is Davy Jones Locker. Was that a real legend that people believed? It was a legend that came again later in the era of the pirates. It uh, doesn't seem to have existed. The first references to it were in a book published, actually published by uh, Daniel Defoe, the period author in 1726. He makes reference to legends that some sailors believe having to do with, it's sort of like an evil spirit apparition figure. He'll be sitting in the rigging you know, when your ship is going to go down and be a, you know, a harbinger of doom. Okay. It became the sort of supernatural figure um, that would be the death of the sailor, usually. And Davy Jones Locker was the idea that you're going to be drowned and taken away by the sea and, you know, end up in his, you know, storage area. So the idea that Davy Jones's locker was like, you know, some quest item that would be worth a lot of money was not ever part of the legend. But um, there was this this figure apparently among at least English sailors, a sort of supernatural trickster like figure who was who was sort of feared as a as a boogeyman, a poetic boogeyman. But again, that, you know, seems to appear in the record shortly, you know, seven, eight years after the pirates have been operating. So could could the pirates have been from a generation that believed that? Yeah, maybe. But you don't hear any references to it in the period documents about the pirates, it's not something that they were like muttering about, you know, to everyone they ran into. Yeah. So maybe yes, but not as a form of like a quest object. Yeah. How about the legend of the Kraken? Cause that's something that we see tied to Davy Jones, you know, bring out the Kraken was, was that tied to Davy Jones locker or anything like that? Or any references? Uh, not to my knowledge. I mean, uh, this is going to be a little fuzzy for me because my expertise and research is on these particular pirates. But I think the Kraken like evolved what in like Norse mythology or something yeah. like that. But the idea that there are sea monsters out there that might encircle your ship and crush it and take it away and it would never be seen again, I think probably was believed by a lot of sailors. I mean, the world was still, you know, somewhat inexplicable and strange things happened out there. And, you know, people believed in the, I think the supernatural to some degree or another that forces out there that we would consider non-scientific could be having a bearing on events. So, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't, I've never encountered any references again in the actual surviving documents associated with these pirates about fear of sea monsters or a kraken and stuff. But, you know, it, it's yeah. of a piece that people would be fearful of those kind of things. If you were creating a movie and you wanted to bring them, what if the mythologies are true and bring them to life, 
sure, bring on a kraken or a, you know, sea serpents or whatever. They would be definitely part of the pantheon of things that, you know, sailors who were drunk all the time, you know, being given large quantities of rum every day as their ration because they couldn't drink the water. Yeah, they probably saw all kinds of stuff, <laughs> mermaids and who knows what, right? Yeah. We talked about Port Royal earlier and, and another concept that we see in, in Dead Man's Chest and again, kind of throughout the entire franchise is from the other side, the, the town, uh, or the pirate town of Tortuga. Was that a real place? I mean, Tortuga is a real place and, you know, an island location, but wasn't a location for a pirate town. I think we just kind of borrowed that name as sounding, you know, appropriate to the region and fair enough. But there were, in fact, real pirate towns. The most famous one being, as I mentioned, the one in Nassau. I mean, essentially, this the real piracy outbreak that they're modeling their story after uh, took place uh, after right after a colonial war, one of these many wars where England fought France and you know Spain and so on. It was called the War of Spanish Secession, ended in 1714. And when it ended, um, a lot of people were thrown out of work. The trade contracted, the Royal Navy contracted by two thirds and just dumped all their sailors out on the docks of wherever they were. And uh, for surviving sailors who could get a berth, you know, get work on a merchant vessel, um, because of supply and demand, they were able to slash wages to beyond starvation level. So, uh, you know, a lot of um, anger out there over the way ordinary people and certainly sailors were treated on ships and Royal Navy ships, sadistic captains and brutal discipline for minor infractions and feeding them, you know, spoiled food and, you know, uh, all kinds of terrible stuff were happening, cheating out of wages. That was all normal. And so there were a lot of grievances and after that war ended, there were even greater grievances. So there ended up being this big outbreak of piracy taking place at that time. And at, uh, uh, during that war, the uh, English colony in the Bahamas Islands had been sacked and destroyed multiple times by the enemy. And the key thing is these pirates who kind of ended up gathering either by mutinying on their vessels or, or wanting to go into piracy moved in first before the empire did. They're the ones who came to Nassau and shored up the fort and set up a battery in the harbor and basically created a base from which they couldn't be evicted, an actual sort of pirate republic, if you will. So yeah, there was this pirate town called in Nassau in the Bahamas during that key period. And there was uh, in the Indian Ocean in Madagascar, there was, had been for a long time a sort of, um, you know, p pirate beachcomber, you know, various people hiding out from the law would go to Madagascar, which hadn't been colonized by Europeans and where the Malagasy people were in rival tribes who kind of fought each other on the island. And you could come ashore and trade with them and form alliances with one tribe against the other. And so there was this whole like, you know, castaway community of pirates and others uh, living there for decades as well. And that was another famous pirate town. So yes, there were pirate towns. None of them were Tortuga, but uh, yeah, that, that's a possibility. Oh, okay. drawing inspired by history yeah 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 uh, w one of the songs that it, it's a song that opens the third movie and again we hear throughout it's the yo ho ho you know pirate's life for me so i just have to ask did pirates sing was that was that a, like a, a classic song that pirates sang or any reference to that well i mean that particular song was uh created in, i think in the 1960s for one of the disney films so, so not that's like a not disney actual pirates <laughs> what's his name george runs or something like that is the guy who composed like all those classic, you know, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves soundtrack, Cinderella, and he scored and created that particular song. So that one wasn't one that the pirates sang. However, uh, sailors sang all the time, all kinds of sea shanties, you know, and 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 songs to have the rhythm. You, you know, in this time period, these were you know sailing vessels were like the one giant piece of industrial machinery out there in the pre-industrial age. You had to have large numbers of people coordinate their actions to make what was the most complicated machine out there work and have to work thousands of miles from home and not have a mishap. So to coordinate, you know, they'd often be singing songs to keep their pace and keep the rhythm and keep going to pull this and have everybody pulling at the same time. And they're also, you know, it's incredibly boring. There's no TV or internet and, you know, what else do you do? So they musical instruments and all that. There was a incredibly well-developed uh, singing and music of the sea and, you know, all, who were the pirates? You know, 99% of them were sailors who went into piracy. So they're, all the traditions of the sailing world at the time were also the pirates' traditions. And that goes for peg legs and, uh, you know, having patches over your eye and parrots on your shoulder. That's all true of merchant sailors at the time. Incredibly dangerous place, cargo's rolling around, it's all in barrels, you fall, you know, you, you get in combat and injured and, you know, if they, 
you lost eyes and limbs and hands all the time. Thus, peg legs and eye patches and hooks for hands. And uh, and exotic animals were like an incredibly cool thing for that long trip home and to show off when you got home. You might have a colorful parrot. You could teach them to talk, right? Birds that can talk. It's like it's like the magic of the Kraken or whatever. And you can bring it home on your shoulder. The magic is real, right? So yeah, and also, you know, entertain yourself as well. So yeah, all all a lot of those things were true of pirates because they were true of sailors in general, including the songs. I'm I'm sure the uh, ration of rum also helped with a lot of those injuries and the songs. (laughs) All of that. I mean, yeah, the amount of, I can't remember, you know, what the ration was for Royal Navy sailors, but it's absolutely shocking just how much they were drinking because they couldn't trust the water supply. So they're dehydrated. They're out there in, you know, wool clothes with no sunblock on. And, you know, yeah, it's amazing that they were able to stand up at all. (laughs) Wow. A a key concept that we see in At World's End is the Brethren Court. And that's where in the movie we see the pirate lords. They're pirates from all around the world. They come and they vote a pirate king. The impression that I got from the movie that pirates were kind of a form of organized crime, kind of like, you know, different mafia families. Were they really that organized? They, they weren't that organized. I mean, the movie is taking something that um, vaguely has parallels in reality and amping it way up out of control. So the, the, the main reason that it couldn't get that developed is none of the pirates survived very long. It wasn't like, you know, a pirate would have a 40 year career and then pass down his legacy to the next pirate. You know, most pirates, you know, died within a year or two of going into piracy. It was an incredibly dangerous occupation. The, only, the reason that this particular golden age gang of pirates, as I described them, that operated out of the Bahamas, it was Blackbeard, Steve Bonnet, uh, you know, uh, Sam Bellamy, um, the women pirates, Mary Reed and Anne Bonnie, Calico Jack Rackham. All of these pirates were part of one gang in the Bahamas. And the reason they're so famous is unlike most pirates, they got a base for themselves. They had a pirate republic that they could resupply and they could repair their ships. They could have R&R and they could set up trading relationships to fence their goods with corrupt merchants who would bring them the gunpowder and the rum and everything they needed. Without that infrastructure, which most pirates through history didn't have, they'd be picked off. You know, a storm will destroy their ship or someone will pick them off or a straight cannonball destroy their main mast and they can't repair it because they can't go into a shipyard. I mean, almost none of them survived very long, which meant you couldn't have these mafia families really form. But what's true about it is they were sort of organized around charismatic figures in an underworld sort of way. So, you know, the pirates, what made this particular gang of pirates unusual and I think made them into antiheroes is they elected their captains by a show of hands. They could depose a captain anytime outside of combat by a show of hands, a popular vote. They had all kinds of restrictions on the captain. They shared their loot equally, regardless of your rank. And, uh, you know, in, in doing all that, that meant that the person who's selected and becomes a pirate captain is generally a charismatic figure popular with the crew who they trust, right? And so they, they can get rid of them, but it also means that these particular pirates have the, the, the man and the crew and the company behind them. And when they would gather at NASA at their pirate base, they were different factions, right? People were loyal to a particular captain or commodore, and there were multiple commodores and captains ashore, and they had to work out among themselves you know, how this place would be governed because you did need to defend the island and organize things and stuff. And somehow they did it, sort of order out of anarchy. I don't know if you, any of your listeners have, you know, remember that series Deadwood, right, that takes mm-hmm. place out there in the, in the Dakota territories. Same thing, right? Uh, it's an outlaw community that shouldn't be there. It has no government. But, you know, the brothel owner and the brutal, you know, Chinese, you know, uh, pig farmer who disposes of the bodies and all these other factions are there and they create an order out of anarchy, even though nobody's in charge. Same thing with this pirate face. So, um, yeah, they're kind of mafia like, but not as organized as you're describing where they where they'd be able to pass down traditions like that. But it, it sounds like it, that that concept had to have been very different from if a lot of the, the pirates used to be uh, sailors for the British Empire, more specifically, I'm sure there were, you know, from other countries as well. But um, just that idea of being able to vote for who your captain is, it, it, set, it sounds like it almost sets up this type of, well, like you're saying, like a republic, right? Where like you're voting and that's just had to be something that they're not used to. That's the really amazing thing about this group of pirates and why I ended up really getting hooked on writing their story. You know, the separating fact from fiction was exactly that. 
right? In an, you know, an era, you know, we're talking, you know, 60 years before the American Revolution and, you know, 75 before the French Revolution. You're getting a view into what ordinary people thought of how things were going in the world. And the answer was they didn't like it at all. They knew that the ship owners and the ship captains and the judges and the governors were all in cahoots and were exploiting everybody. You know, this is the time when the class system was being created. This is the early modern period when the old obligations of the feudal period of the medieval days, you know, where, yes, you're a serf and I'm your lord, but, you know, I owe the serf certain things and protection and you and they get to tend the land and they have to give me this and that. That was all breaking down. Like the serfs are being kicked off the land and they were being made, you know, the land was being made into giant commercial sheep farms to enrich the lord. And there was suddenly all these peasants with nowhere to go who were the surplus population. I mean, it was the consolidation of a much more brutal system. And these pirates were experiencing that both at home before they went into piracy and on the ships. And they finally end up rising up. And what do they do? Yeah, this roughshod, crude, leveling, democratic impulse where they will elect their captains and depose them. Not only that, they, you know, they they had these primitive disability benefits, right? But they, they would take the treasure and on a privateering vessel, right? Privateering, privateers were people who were allowed to be mercenaries by their government in time of war to go raid enemy shipping, kind of like, you know, mar- maritime mercenaries. Um, and they would be private stock companies would be set up and they would send out on privateering missions to go attack the French or whoever it was. And they'd bring back their prizes and the investors would get half of the shares who had, who had raised the money. And the captain would get 14 shares and each crewman would get one. On a pirate vessel, there's no investors. They get all of the money and they, they, everyone would get a share, except the captain might get a share and a half just as kind of a bonus, but that's it. But before they divide up the treasure, they would hand out, there's like Bartholomew Roberts, I believe it's his articles that spell it out. You know, you know, you get two pounds off the top for anyone who's lost an eye and three pounds for someone who's lost wow. a leg. Before we divvy up the treasure, this is at a time where none of that existed anywhere in the English world. There weren't there weren't social benefits, and there weren't this kind of democracy. So yeah, this is a key point, which I think is part of the reason that, despite the fact these pirates were condemned by the authorities as the villains of all nations and enemies of the empire and had to be hunted down, most people at that time appear to have been on the pirate side, had to have believed the pirate stories that they were in fact Robin Hood's men settling the scores for ordinary people against against their you know exploitative masters, and so that's why. The fact of that is why they exist as antiheroes. These people who should we should regard as criminals had a case to be made that was believed at the time that they were really the antiheroes whose side you ought to be on, which is kind of their reputation in pop culture now. Well, I, that just I have to ask then: it, was there something that kind of inspired them to come up with those concepts that seem to be so foreign for? pretty much the the entire time there. And then on the other side of that, because we're, we are more familiar with more democratic things today, were things like, you know, with the American revolution as, you know, specifically perhaps were they almost inspired by pirates and be like, Hey, this actually, this can work. <laughs> right. I, you know, we don't have a, I mean, it, it's a view that out in the public, the people who didn't read and write and leave us notes on what they thought, you know, most people, um, that there was this inspiration that things are wrong and that people should be able to govern themselves. Some, something of that was out there. I'm not sure that it inspired the people who kind of led the American Revolution and the ideas in it. You know, they're reading their, you know, Locke and everybody else, these you know, natural rights theories. And the slaveholders weren't, but some of them were. And, uh, and, you know, getting their ideas through the written culture. But I think the reason it was percolating around is that this was felt in a lot of places, right? There's a levelers movement to a, a, a roughshod, radical uh, sort of democratic movement that was happening in the, even in the English Civil Wars, the 1640s and later where people wanted to, you know, level out society and not have there be incredibly rich people and poor ones. So those ideas were already percolating around. Where did they come from? I, I don't have the real answer, but I know that in the culture of Scandinavia and the old like Anglo-Saxon mythology and all that, there's this notion that your freeborn people is kind of a, a something that they would key off. And I don't know to what extent that would have been passed around to ordinary sailors, but in the sort of deep cultural mores, there's this idea that's different than the like Roman Empire Latin idea, but freedom is a Germanish Freiheit concept of like 
inborn freedom, at least for you and your gang. Maybe all those other people out there don't deserve it, but your, your tribe does, right? But liberty is the Latin word, right, of the Roman Empire, libertas, which is a liberty is a privilege given to you to be able to be a citizen, right? That, that liberties are special privileges for a few, right? So the democracy of ancient Greece and ancient Rome, these are slave societies with a small number of people at the top with the liberty to practice democracy, right? So what I'm saying is in that zone that many of the pirates came from in the culture is some idea of like, you know, freeborn you know, people, you know, sort of uh, that may have been out there in the deep psyche somewhere, but it's hard to know for sure. That is, that's fascinating. Uh, if we go back to the movies at the beginning of the fourth movie on Stranger Tides, there's a, a sailor that claims he found Ponce de Leon's ship. And that's something that, you know, he, he had died some 200 years earlier. The movie mentions that. And then it sets up Captain Jack Sparrow searching for the Fountain of Youth. Do we know if there were pirates who actually searched for the Fountain of Youth? Um, I don't think any of the pirates from that era of search for the Fountain of Youth or anything like that. However, it was probably part of the legend lore of the greater Caribbean basin that, you know, people like Ponce de Leon and many of the Spanish conquistadors, you know, were looking for the Fountain of Youth or had actually found Mountain of Silver in Peru and, you know, crazy amounts of gold that they were stealing from the Aztecs. It seemed impossible in the earth, you know things that seemed impossible from the old European experience before they found the Americas turned out to be possible. And so people believed all kinds of additional things could be possible, including a fountain of youth and other magical things. So I think probably, you know, since they're operating the Caribbean theater and their, you know, um, their neighbors are the Spanish and the stories of de las Casas and what was happening in the, in the Spanish um, colonization um, of the, of the Americas, you know, those ideas were probably around there. I don't think any of them were exercising them, but they probably a lot of them knew about the fountain of youth legend, at least. Okay. Okay. Uh, another concept that we see in on stranger tides, I, I know we, we kind of talked about this a little bit before, but it's the concept of the privateer. And one of the lines of dialogue I point out specifically, I think is Jack Sparrow is talking to Hector Barbosa and he calls him a pirate. He calls Barbosa a pirate and Barbosa just replies, pirate. Nay, privateer. Can you clarify the difference between those? And did people bounce between being a pirate and a privateer and back and forth? And it almost sounds like it's, you can go either one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So uh, a privateer is somebody, uh, as I mentioned before, who'd been given permission by their government in time of war to attack enemy shipping. So you have these vast oceans. The government only has a few Royal Navy vessels. And how are you ever going to stop the enemy, you know, attack them, defend your colonies, and raid their shipping all at once, absolutely impossible. So what do you do? You go to the private sector and they would make them a deal. Hey, you have permission to go attack any French ships you want or Spanish ships, whoever you're at war with, and you can keep a lot of the treasure and you bring me, you know, the sovereign part of it and uh, as, a, as a tax and everybody wins. And it was very lucrative. So tons of people would get involved in privateering and you'd hire capable people to be your privateering captain and privateering crews. They're all in it for the money. So that had been, that was a, a normal thing and many people were engaged in it. And if you were a really good privateer, you'd be celebrated. You could get a knighthood like, like Sir Henry Morgan did. Uh, Captain Kidd was a privateer initially before he upset and insulted rich and powerful people in the East India Company and got himself declared a pirate. So, I mean, privateers were pro- entirely respectable people in within their own societies. They might appear to be pirates from the other side. Uh, pirates, by contrast, hadn't gotten permission to do what they were doing from anybody. They were, and they were often operating in times of peace. And they were often attacking vessels from their own nation. So they were just, you know, all out criminals from the perspective of their government. And if they made it home, they wouldn't be knighted, they'd be hanged. So that was the difference between them. Uh, however, many, many of the pirates, remember I said that this um, outbreak had taken place in the aftermath of a colonial war, the War of Spanish Secession. And in addition to all of the push factors, all the ways that sailors are being exploited, also many of them had been privateers during that war. They had all of the skills and they were making lots of money raiding Spanish ships and all of a sudden the war ends and your privateering permission, letters mark, were taken away from you. So you've got your ship and you got your gun and you got your cannon and suddenly you can't go attack the Spanish anymore. So, you know, the only way you could do it was to go be a pirate if you wanted to keep doing what you'd been doing the whole time. So many, um, many people who had been privateers became pirates. Usually that was a one way trip, right? You couldn't once you're a pirate, you're in trouble with everybody. You can't just go back to being a privateer. 
except this particular outbreak in Nassau that I write about in Republic of Pirates got so bad it was threatening all of the empires, including the English Empire. And so the, the king ends up um, offering a pardon. He has a divide and conquer strategy so the pirates could take a pardon from the king and be absolved for all of their piracies up till the date of the pardon and keep their treasure and could go back to normal life. And many of them, when the next war came out, became privateers again. So in the instance of these particular pirates, yeah, people were privateers, became pirates and then became privateers again. Wow. It sounds like I'm basically doing the exact same thing. It's just a matter of what what they're called and whether or not the law is after them. Exactly. And and whether or not you're attacking your own country's vessels, those are pretty much the only differences. Would then the East India um, Trading Company, then that you you mentioned them having almost their, what, 200,000, you said, uh, soldiers, soldiers. would their Navy, would their ships be considered privateers? Would they be along that Uh, line or because they're employed by the East India Company, would they be something different? They're armed merchantmen. So okay. they're merchant vessels uh, with uh, exclusive monopoly to their part of the world, the India and all that. And they're armed to defend themselves against pirates or the enemy or you know anybody trying to mess with them. So they'd have these heavily armed vessels, but they weren't combat vessels per se. So they wouldn't be involved in, in uh, the defensive and, uh, because the real value of them is the goods they're transporting back to London. Their value to the empire their value to the sovereign and everybody else is that those goods get to and fro. And so you okay. arm the ship to defend themselves. Okay. As opposed to the privateers, which are more seeking out Spanish right. or the enemy. <laughs> All, both pirates and privateers of various nations might be trying to attack the East India ships, but their job was to repel both categories of vessels. Okay. Okay. Uh, one of the pirates that we meet for the first time in the movie on stranger tides is Blackbeard and his he is the captain of a ship called Queen Anne's Revenge. I think everybody knows that Blackbeard was a real pirate, but how well did the series do depicting him? Well, I mean, uh, uh, Blackbeard was a real pirate uh, and Queen Anne's Revenge was his his ultimate, you know, his greatest flagship that he had for a time and uh, scared everybody and charged around with this large frigate sized vessel that had been a slave ship. A lot of the pirates you know, wanted to uh, attack slave ships because they made great pirate ships. They were fast. You could heavily arm them. They could carry a lot of cargo, perishable cargo, and that people died and they treated them terribly, uh, but they had to move pretty quickly. And those are all characteristics that work well as pirate ships. And the Queen Anne's Revenge had been a, a French pirate ship. So that much was true. Their depiction of Blackbeard beyond that is not really anchored much to, to reality. I mean, the parallels are that the reason that Blackbeard became so famous is he intentionally cultivated a terrifying appearance and reputation. He would light, you know, fuses in his beard so smoke would be flying off them and make him look like sort of like a devil-like figure standing on the deck as he's approaching your ship and demanding you surrender. And he carried, you know, he and his men would have, you know, grenades and cutlasses and be wearing, you know, the like a Mad Max movie, all of the clothes of the rich passengers that they'd, you know, previously captured. And, you know, just, they just looked as scary as you might possibly imagine. That was the whole point because Blackbeard wanted the ships to surrender without firing a shot. No risk to yourself, no risk that a cannonball accidentally takes out your main mast, damages your ship. But more importantly, what did they want? They wanted the other ship, its cargo, and the source of most voluntary pirate recruits were the downtrodden sailors on the vessels they captured. You know, typically a quarter or a third of the sailors on any vessel they would capture would voluntarily want to join the pirates, right? You're being exploited, fed, you know, not being paid your wages, fed weevilly bread, and, you know, life's pretty miserable, and these pirates capture your ship, and they're all breaking out in Madeira and seem to be having a good old time. A lot of them would say, hey, take me with you, right? <laughs> so you don't want to hurt any of the crew either. So Blackbeard had a really, really smart strategy and it paid off. I mean, he's, he, he was thought of as the most terrifying of all pirates for all these reasons. And everyone was surrendering without firing a shot. But if you read all of the documents of all the ships and stuff that Blackbeard captured, all the documents, by the way, almost all the testimony is from his victims, right? They're not sympathetic to him. And yet there's not a single instance anywhere there of him killing or harming anybody prior to his final fatal battle with the Royal Navy in 1718. So it worked. So in that sense, yeah, he was, he was, um, everyone was scared of him and that was exactly the plan. He was a very shrewd operator. 
It sounds like that too, because you know that fear might also help with almost his own political side. If he, if everything on on his own ship is democratic, and he has to stay captain, he has to keep people happy, not only with the yeah. success, but also just his own image. Keep everyone inspired. Maintain yourself as a charismatic leader. Absolutely, all of those things, and he was very good at all of them. Wow, wow! In the last movie, the franchise Dead Men Tell No Tales, we see a young Jack Sparrow pull off what the movie calls a bootleg turn. It's something that looks a lot like something we saw in the first movie in Black Pearl when it drops starboard anchor and they're going full speed, and the ship just turns around, does a quick turn. In the movie, they call it club hauling. Would it be possible to do those types of turns? You mentioned the, you know, the, sh- the ship speed and it, I don't know. It just seems like it would be pretty funny to watch somebody try to do it. I mean, yeah, it, the destruction it would cause to your own vessel is um, <laughs> potentially catastrophic. I mean, you throw that anchor down and if it does really catch, you're going 14 knots in the other direction. I mean, the stress is that the cable, the, the rope is probably going to snap. Um, but if it doesn't snap, I mean, it's going to rip out whatever it's attached to. I mean, it's going to be really bad. It's not going to swing your vessel around quite like that. It's inspired on a, you know, a real maneuver that was a bit different. I've actually done it myself on smaller sailing vessels. But if you run aground and you're kind of stuck or you're becalmed, you know, that a sailing vessel didn't have any engines back then, of course. So if you're becalmed, what do you do? If your vessel's stuck on the, on a shoal or something, uh, oftentimes you would take an anchor and you'd put the anchor in a you know rowboat. People would row out with it attached to your ship and throw it overboard, like as far from the ship as they can get in open water. And then you take the capstan, the giant, you know, crank, you know, that multiple people would push to haul in the anchor. And you would try to literally drag the ship off the shoal uh, from the anchor. Another maneuver is to take the anchor and you know, run it up uh, up off a pulley on the main mast and actually try to pull the ship over on its side a bit so that it, it, t- it draws less water, it takes up less water, it might get afloat again. So some combination of those things is called kedging. You could do that. And I think that's where somebody got the idea, hey, this would look cool if we threw an anchor overboard, it spun us around. But yeah, the forces involved, uh, certainly in an era where everything's made out of organic fiber rope and, you know, anchored with wood, I mean, it would just tear everything apart catastrophically it would have been pretty cool to watch as a special effect but it would not earn the ship movie magic (laughs) maybe incredibly slow speed i don't know if you're going really slow maybe you could assist a turn but then how are you gonna get the anchor up i mean the the anchor's embedded you're gonna have to hack it off i mean it just yeah it wouldn't make any sense that's a that's a very good point they don't they don't they don't show that in the movie it's just (laughs) because that's gonna throw you right yeah it's it's not gonna turn out well then yeah we talked earlier about the the pirate search for the fountain of youth and whether or not that was the real but in the in dead men tell no tales we see everybody searching for the trident of poseidon and that includes the british empire did the british really look for legendary items to help grow their empire yeah nothing in this time you know not not, not in this era nobody was talking about trying to find some talisman or or something like that certainly not the trident they described i mean empires in the past and history have done that and you know, I think like a lot of the crazy guys running the Third Reich, you know, believed that there were somehow these, you know, special objects that would help their their armies. You know, they were they believed in a lot of nutty stuff, but among them, the sort of, you know, Aryan and Norse mythology and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So it's not beyond imperial authorities to think that some supernatural object from the past might help them. But I haven't seen anything uh, from this era of uh, of English and early British uh, Atlantic history that they were trying to do anything like that. They were pretty concentrated on the profits made in, you know, cotton and, you know, exploiting and killing, you know, slaves to make sugar and all that kind of stuff was kind of the focus of the empire. And they wouldn't have to get involved in that kind of stuff. Things were going pretty well for England's overseas empire at the time. So they might not have felt the desire to, to need to, you know, find a supernatural object to level up. <laughs> Makes sense. It's just working the way it is. <laughs> Why? You don't need <laughs> Maybe they, you know, queen scepter or whatever else we already have in our vault is working magic already, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on to chat about the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise. Uh, for someone listening to this who wants to learn more, you have a fantastic book called The Republic of Pirates. And I'll make sure to include a link to that in the show notes for this episode. But before I let you go, can you Maybe share one of your favorite stories from the book and where someone listening can find all your work. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, colinwoodard.com, C-O-L-I-N-W-O-O-D-A-R-D will lead you to more than you want to know about me and my books. Um, and the, I think some of the most incredible stories, and there are a lot of incredible stories, but, you know, Blackbeard's backstory, you know, I mentioned that there was this pardon issued by the king and eventually word gets around, right? There's no radio, so you got to wait for, you know, a ship shows up with the news and it's like, oh my gosh, the king's just issued a pardon. And then people have to get in boats and, you know, go to the next island and let people know. But word was getting around. Uh, that they, that there was this possibility to um, be absolved of your sins of piracy. And so lots of pirates ran off to take it. And Blackbeard, when you realize that when he gets the news from a ship he's captured, he ends up trying to make a final score. He does all these, um, you know, trying to track down a, a royally sanctioned treasure ship that's going to be going to make the first post-war visits to New Spain's empire to trade for gold and stuff. He's trying to track that down. And he can't, but he's eventually plotting to get rid of all of the sailors he doesn't trust in his flotilla of like 400 sailors and gather the 40 or 50 men around him he really cares about. So he, he's, he's planning ahead and he ends up, you know, ditching most of the sailors. He destroys the Queen Anne's revenge. He gets in a small boat and he goes to the like last place on earth, the weakest of all the colonies to go take the pardon from that governor. And that was the colony of North Carolina. It was then, you know, terribly poor. The Virginians made fun of the North Carolinians. That's where the, you know, lousy, you know, good for nothing people would go. And it had a very small population. It had been almost completely destroyed in a war. The local indigenous inhabitants, the capital is this little village of like 500 people. And uh, they came ashore there and he basically makes a deal with the governor of North Carolina that sets himself up as this Tony Soprano like mafia figure, right? He's he, hey, I took my pardon and uh, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. I'm going to go take a recreational sail out in the Atlantic and come back with a bunch of treasure I found in the sea somewhere. And I'm going <laughs> to sell it to you. And it's going to end up in, you know, the, the collector of customs barn and uh, under a pile of hay in the in the in the capital of North Carolina. And all my men will, ha- will happen to be around and they're well armed to can fend off any attacks that come. And I'm going to bring in all of this treasure to this impoverished colony that will totally change your balance of payments problems. And so, yeah, that's the most interesting thing is how well and sophisticated he was in trying to set himself up as, you know, what would be better than being a pirate Well, being a pirate who's under the protection of an entire colonial government. And so that was what he was going for. Almost like the ultimate privateer, it sounds like. Yeah, right. Super private. Poor. <laughs> yeah. But uh, fortunately he didn't realize that uh, the governor of much more powerful Virginia was uh would have uh, not that much respect for the law and would actually go after him invading a neighboring territory's uh, territory to track him down. Wow. wow. I'll make sure to include a link to your book for people to read about that story. Thank you again so much for your time, Colin. Thank you. I enjoyed it. This episode of Based on a True Story was produced by me, Dan Lafette. I'd like to thank Colin Woodard once again for sharing his knowledge about the true story behind the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. If you want to learn more about the real pirates, definitely go pick up Colin's amazing book. The full title of it is The Republic of Pirates, being the true and surprising story of the Caribbean pirates and the man who brought them down. As always, I've got links to Colin's book and all his work in the show notes for this episode. If you're driving or not able to get there now, all those links are also on the show's home on the web based on a true story podcast.com. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. And as a quick refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, the timeline in history that inspired the pirates of fiction took place in the early 1600s. Number two, pirate captains were elected by a show of hands from the crew. Number three, up until his final fatal battle, there's no proof of Blackbeard killing anyone. Did you catch which one is a lie? Let's go out of order and we'll start in the middle with number two. Pirate captains were elected by a show of hands from the crew. That is true. We learned that one of the draws for sailors to be pirates was the democratic process of voting for the captain. That meant to be a captain, you had to be pretty charismatic, something that's very different than many sailors were used to in the Navy, where they certainly did not vote for their captains. Next, we'll look at number three. Up until his final fatal battle, there's no proof of Blackbeard killing anyone. That is also true. Even though Blackbeard had a terrifying persona that built his legacy to be something that we're still familiar with today, that persona was so successful that, as Colin 
explained. There's not a single incident of Blackbeard killing or harming anyone up until his final fatal battle with the Royal Navy in 1718. Last but not least, number one is the lie. The timeline in history that inspired the Pirates of Fiction took place in the early 1600s. As Colin told us, the real timeline was the early 1700s, more specifically between 1714 and 1719. If this podcast was entertaining, if you find value in what you're listening to, if you like what I do and you'd like to give back, you can do that over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Once again, that's basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Until next time, thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon. Mm-hmm.